0: Greetings, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention how I will be sharing this message. In 1 Peter 4.11, the Word of God says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is what I intend to do. To allow what I speak here in this message to come forth as the Word of God we are to seek to allow God's words to come through us by His Holy Spirit that indwells those that are yielded to Him, that have been redeemed, that have received His atoning work of grace on the cross. This is basically the spirit of prophecy. It is learning to speak Not what comes out of our mind. Merely. But what comes from the inner depths of our being by the flow of the Holy Spirit and our renewed mind. It is not a negation of intellect. It is the new transformation of our mind in intellect that is involved but it is coming and is originating from the Spirit of God that is illuminating our mind and causing us to bring forth words that are out of His Spirit. So, when it says in Revelations 19, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy, it's a command to, in this particular case the Apostle John who fell prostrated, the angel and the angel said unto him see thou do it not for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and then gave that command to worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy it is out of worshiping God in spirit and in truth That Jesus is testified of in a way that is not merely something that falls into people's minds, but rather something that penetrates to their very inner being. To bring them to conversion if they're not converted. Or to bring them into a higher level of union and fellowship with God if they are. It comes out of a conscious state of worship, the spirit of prophecy. It flows out of being conscious of the reality of who God is. Not just merely with uh, an awareness, but with an engaging, a reciprocating back and forth engaging of our inner being in soul and in spirit before God. Out of that, the Spirit of God dwells within us in such a way that it is not only indwelling us, but being released through us. The same is true with tongues. That's a long message, of course. A lot of people, they have a block towards speaking in tongues as believers. But the Word of God says that the Spirit in us groans with groanings that cannot be uttered. You know the old hymn that says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glory of my God's redeeming grace. Something to that effect. We, as believers, experience the presence of God in our inner being. And it is a comprehension that is beyond the mind. We cannot always put in words what we are feeling in our soul and spirit. It's groanings that can't be uttered in normal language. In fact, I would even say this. Even if you didn't know God, tongues would be a tremendous therapy to release what you can't get out of you because it releases you to express something of your inner being which is burdened with whatever you're burdened with, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And so if a believer has a mental block, let's put it this way. Try to express out of your inner being what's really deep inside your heart. Begin to sing a song and begin to focus on the reality of who God is. And if you've already received the spirit of God through rebirth and have been filled with the spirit of God. Through total consecration of your life to receive the immersion of his spirit, the saturation of his spirit. Then what do you think will happen? You begin to put in words what's happening in your heart because you are seeing something in your heart that is hard to put in words sometimes. And you need to get it out. So you open your mouth and you allow your tongue to flow in the expression of what's in your inner being. But when you're filled with the Spirit of God, then that is carried beyond merely the expression of your soul and your spirit. It involves the reciprocative engaging of fellowship with God by abiding in the Spirit of God, being in the Spirit. And so you begin to experience a language that is very real, and it sounds not just gibberish, but a very real, beautiful language comes forth. I'm not saying that it can't be of the Spirit of God if it sounds like it's not a real language. But I know that's my experience, that it does sound like a very real language. And there are various levels of engagement in tongues to the point that I've had the rare occasion of such a powerful infilling of the Spirit that I was totally taken over so that it was not myself but fully the Spirit of God. And I knew I was speaking a very real language that would be possibly one of the languages spoken in this world. In fact, the last time this happened, it sounded very much like some kind of a language that maybe was from a, a, a particular ethnic group of Indians or something. I don't know. But it totally changed into a language that I'd never heard before. So that's something that I normally don't speak on when I'm introducing a message, but that's fine. And so this verse commanding us to worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy is basically saying this. That when we worship God out of a pure heart and spirit and in truth, we will experience the spirit of God rising in us so that we are not speaking our own words but God's words. And I want to seek to do that in the messages that I speak. That doesn't mean that I don't use my mind. Because my mind is renewed by the Spirit of God. I'm not using the carnal natural thinking. My mind is being illuminated by the Spirit of God from my heart. The control center isn't the mind. It is the abiding of my heart in the heart of God. So it is what is coming out of the heart of God that comes forth. And so we are to speak out of a consciousness of relationship with God in that sense, in the sense of engagement of our soul and our spirit in fellowship with God. And so this is a longer introduction to where I'm coming from. And so because of that, I facilitate everything that it would be this way. Now, I am also one that is... Casting lots on the scripture to discover what God is wanting to say to me from a particular chapter each day where there's an equal chance for it to fall in any particular chapter in the word of God. And so I will be choosing a particular chapter to share from. Now the last time I shared was a long time since the time before. And so I had over two weeks of chapters. And so what happened was I ended up just speaking a bit on each chapter. Although initially I was wanting to speak on Luke 7. Well, what what do you know? The next time I'm planning to speak, the casting of the lot came on Luke 7. So I have concluded that today I am to speak in particular on Luke chapter 7 in depth. And I don't know. I'll probably touch on that number of the chapters I received earlier this week as well. It's the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's soul leads. So I want to begin to read Luke chapter 7. And then begin to share what God has gifted me by a spirit to share with you in the giftings that he's given me to the body of Christ. So beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought, besought him instantly, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but to say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. And it came to pass, the day after, that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the briar, and they that bare with him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea, and throughout all the region round about, and the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John, calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities, and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor To the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind, but what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment, behold, they that are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard Him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the market place and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist neither came eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he have a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a winebagger, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of all her children. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bitten him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman. This is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee, and he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Now after reading a long passage of 50 verses, I'm just going to take a brief drink of water here. I want to pray before I begin to speak as the oracles of God, as I seek to speak as the oracles of God, what he would say to the body of Christ and to you as an individual and also to me. Father God in heaven, I ask earnestly that your word would prevail through me, that your word would have free course in those that hear this message and be glorified for this hour as to what you would be saying to the body of Christ that they may be awakened in their lives to enter their own individual destinies and also for the body of Christ to rise and come forth to become his bride and fulfill John 17 that the world might believe because they see the glory of our union of fellowship with you and with one another. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. In the first section of this chapter, which is verses 1 to 10, we have the account of the centurion, which we just read. And the Lord concludes with saying, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. What Christ saw in the centurion was real, genuine faith. In this passage of scripture, I believe God is also in the various other sections that were read, Revealing what genuine faith is, and I will say this, that Luke chapter 17 is even a more deeper insight into the difference between genuine and real faith. In that chapter, we have faith being particularly defined by Christ, and in the following things and events that happen, it is more magnified and understood. Today we have a lot of people talking about faith, but a lot of the faith teaching, in the faith teaching movement even, is not a good teaching on faith. Its emphasis is in the wrong place, and it tends to draw people into thinking that somehow they can have faith in their faith by somehow getting into a state where they will believe anything and there's not an understanding of how genuine faith comes forth in power and in demonstration. There is the work of faith with power. Paul the Apostle talked about it. It's mentioned in Ephesians That we should know the exceeding great, to those that believe, it says. Remember, it says to those that believe. That's the word pistis, which is also the word used for, you know, there's the adjectives and there's the nouns. And I'm not a Greek expert, but it's basically the same root. It is this pistis word, which means moral persuasion to be Passively convinced is also mentioned in the vines. It is a moral persuasion, not of the intellect, but of the heart and who God is. That results in the engagement of our soul into a relationship of relinquishment and trust in God. And I think the very best illustration of that is the clenched fist. The clenched fist represents a state of rebellion. It represents a state where everything is enfolding on itself, like the fingers folding into the core of the hand. This symbol of the clenched fist is the symbol of counterfeit faith, faith in ourselves. Paul the Apostle says, in I believe it is Ephesians, we are the circumcision, which worship God in spirit and in truth, and have no confidence in the flesh. Whatever you're trusting is where you are putting your worth. It is where, therefore, you are putting your glory. So if we are having confidence in our own righteousness and our own sufficiency to cause God to come forth and answer our prayers, we're in error and we're in a state of self-righteous deception where our confidence is in our own soul instead of in God. There needs to be a genuine moral persuasion from the heart that causes the heart to be engaged reciprocatively in fellowship with God. Now that that starts first at conversion. But it is an ongoing process after that. It says in the word of God, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So with this centurion here, what do we see, first of all, of real and genuine faith? We see someone that has absolute, utter respect for Jesus Christ, utter reverence that causes him to be totally humbled in himself. This is the key to genuine faith. It is the genuine fear of God. When people enter in to the genuine fear of God, they will birth genuine faith. In fact, genuine faith involves the rebirth. Peter the Apostle said, when those... Believers were baptized in the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues that were Gentiles. He said, I now conclude that all those that fear God are accepted of him. So the genuine fear of God, we must therefore conclude if they are accepted of him, involves genuine rebirth. That Christ shared in John chapter 3. Before he died on the cross, he expected the spiritual leaders to know what it meant to be genuinely brought forth anew of the Spirit of God. And he marveled that they didn't know it. Genuine rebirth involves conversion, definitely a total transformation of one's soul from the way they were. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It is only through receiving the atoning work of Elohim, in Jesus Christ in particular, in his atoning work on the cross, that people are born again, or brought forth anew of the Spirit of God. And this has happened since the very beginning of time, since the time of Adam and Eve. People entered into a deep, intimate relationship of fellowship with God. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Why? Because he had this testimony that he pleased God. Do you not think that he knew intimate fellowship and communion with God in his soul and his spirit? Now, I'm not here to get into theological details of what I've written in a book on the fear of God. But I just simply want to point out here this. There is a significant difference between the time after Christ's atoning work on the cross and before. And the key of understanding it is in the verse that Christ mentioned when he was speaking to his disciples before he died on the cross in John chapter 14, when he said, concerning the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the Father, he said, but you know him for he dwells in you. No, but you know him for he do but you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. The difference is that before he dwelt with, but they still knew God through that indwelling of the Spirit of God with their soul and spirit. The time after is that because Christ representing our soul and our spirit, which no animal could. Therefore, our soul and spirit could be cleansed after the toning and work of Christ. Therefore, the Spirit of God could now dwell within our very soul and our very spirit. That is the difference, basically. That difference also involved a difference, therefore, in entering in our prayers before the very presence of God as well. Because now, through the veil of his flesh that was rent, that involved the atoning of our whole being, which could only be by a perfect man which could only be God. We enter in to the very direct presence of God. and parallel with that is the very direct or indwelling of God as opposed to the dwelling of God with our soul and spirit in engaged fellowship before. But with this symbol of the clenched fist, which represents our soul and our spirit, it is out of the genuine fear of God that this happens. And this is made very clear in 1 John, which says that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Therefore, what is born of God is our faith. If it's genuine for faith, it is brought forth of God. And we're brought forth in you by the Spirit of God. So briefly, how has that been happening from the time of Adam and Eve up until now with that difference that I can't go into in depth here? When you have the genuine fear of God or when you choose to enter in to genuinely fearing God you may be brought to that place as you are cornered like the prodigal son to see the absolute emptiness of your life apart from God You've tried to fill the void within your being that's like a black hole in outer space it's pulling everything in, in your choices and decisions in life in a destructive way, and ruining the lives of those around you. And you're trying to fill that void. And the more you try to fill that void that only God can fill and give you the wholeness that will cause you to cease from this self-grasping destructive state, the more you try to do it, the worse it gets, to the point that you come to the end of yourself and you see how hopeless and futile your life is now you can harden your heart and ignore it and sear your conscience by belief systems that cause you to sell your soul to darkness and evil and seal your fate for eternity or like the prodigal son you become so loathing Of the deception in your own life and the deception of those around you, that you now are at a state where you're hungry for only one thing, and that is what is ultimately trustworthy and ultimately real, what will ultimately satisfy, and that can only be what is ultimately real. Do you know that the name of God is basically saying, I am the ultimate reality? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God defines himself like this. In Hebrew, it says, ahiyah asher ahiyah. Meaning, I am that I am. He's basically saying, I am the source of reality. Yahweh or Jehovah, Which is very similar to the word love, ahava. In Hebrew. is what it is saying. That I am the self-existent one. I am the ultimate source of reality. So what is this fear of God? How does one come like the prodigal son to a place of recognizing, being cornered, to to only want what is ultimately trustworthy and real so that you choose that? You see, only God is ultimately trustworthy and real, the one true God. And why is that? Because he has a love that I will define like this. It is a love that is so pure, that has such great integrity, that it will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to the ultimate perfection of love. Love being that quality of being that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment, There would be a choice that is less than the highest lasting good. This love has such integrity that it is a devouring fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to this quality of being. That is why God requires judgment on all things that are destructive in their state of being. God's love has no corruption in it. And if God was less than perfect in his love, in the integrity of his love, to judge all that is contrary to love, he would have corruption in him and he would no longer be ultimately trustworthy to be able to contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it or having it dissipate. No, he is the very life source of all existence. He is the very source of all wholeness. The holiness of God is basically the integrity of God's love that will not tolerate what is contrary to this ultimate quality of love that always chooses the highest lasting good. And when people are like the prodigal son, and they see the emptiness of their lives, and they want what's ultimately real, and they hear about a God that is holy, they will not tolerate corruption. They recognize that he must be ultimately good. Because you see, you cannot have ultimate goodness in what has corruption in it. And it is the recognition that God is so pure in his love that it devours all that is contrary to love that causes one to no longer be in rebellion at the consequences that God is allowing because of sin. People shake their fist at God all the time. If you're God, why do you allow all this suffering in my life? If you're God, why is there all this misery and suffering in the world? Here's the dilemma. When you create beings that have their own free will, which is necessary in order to have genuine reciprocation and fellowship and love. You don't want robots. When you create beings like that, there's always going to be the potential for hell. Because you have your own free choice. But if God did not create beings that have the capacity to love, we would not have the experience of love. And it would negate the very reason for existence, which is the experience of love in fellowship with God. And for why God created all things was for that fellowship. It was for his pleasure. He created all things. And so God is not going to uh, negate creation and existence Because people choose of their own free will to reject his love. It's like building a house. The cost of building that house is that there is some waste, some sawdust. If people of their own free will choose to reject the love of God, it is their choice and they become part of the sawdust and the dust but it's not going to negate the purpose of the house because some of their own free will make such a choice. What I want to share here, and it may sound like I'm getting off track, but I'm not. What I want to emphasize here is the, with genuine how genuine faith comes forth and now I'm bringing out that it involves coming to the place where you choose to recognize God for the reality of who he is, first in his holiness. And when you see that he is holy, you begin to recognize that he is good. But you you used to rebel against all the consequences around you. But now you see, you deserve the judgment of God. Because you realize your own deception and the deception of others around you. They do not have the secret of ultimate economy that can last forever and never dissipate, that can last forever in greater and greater fulfillment and creativity because there's no corruption in it. Only God has that quality. He is the very source of all fulfillment and meaning and purpose, the very source of life. Because he is holy, there is wholeness to be had in God. It is out of holiness that comes wholeness in our being. It is our failure to enter into wholeness that causes us to experience the consequences that we experience. But when we choose to recognize that God is holy, that his love is so perfect and pure that there must be these consequences of suffering around us because of our own rebellion, that we are the ones that are guilty, that we are the ones that are the source. We realize how unworthy we are, and we are humbled before God. Now, that's one aspect of the being of God's love. The other aspect is springs out of the foundation of this. And I would say that this first aspect that I'm talking about, which is the holiness of God, can be represented in the negative symbol in electricity, which is a straight line, which represents foundation, which is a straight line, which represents cutting off all corruption. That is the foundation from which can spring forth this creativity that can ever enlarge in greater realms of fulfillment. And it is ultimately expressed in the fact that God's love is so great that he can assure destiny to his creation without violating the integrity of his love. He can assure destiny to free willed beings that make choices that bring hell into their lives if they choose the perfect atoning, the perfect atoning work of God. And I know that from the time of Adam and Eve, this gospel was preached, that God could only be a perfect atoning sacrifice. I don't have time to go into the details in this message, or I'll neglect this passage of scripture. I don't have time to go into it. But they sacrificed those animals. Even Adam and Eve had coats of skin shed, and they were clothed with coats of skin, representing the need for atonement. But they recognized that God was the source of forgiveness, not the animal sacrificed. And they also recognized that those animals did not represent their soul and their spirit, because there are scriptures that say this very clearly that even if I gave my own body or the fruit of my womb as a ransom for my soul, it would not suffice. There was the recognition that it could only be in a perfect atoning sacrifice, and they knew that could not be within man, because man was already fallen. There was none that were living perfect. They all needed, like Abel, to come before God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I offer this animal sacrifice as a symbol unto you to receive of your forgiveness. You are the source of forgiveness. And in you there must be a moral quality that is so pure in love that it is transcended out of that foundation of holiness with being able to actually live a perfect life Like I am here on earth without sin. And become and actually have within your being the ability to become a perfect atoning sacrifice for me. They recognized the goodness of God out of the holiness of God was so great. That he could assure destiny without violating the integrity of his love. That he could assure destiny in perfect atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ is called the Son of Man because the Son of Man represents this meaning. It means totally human, but human in the perfection that God made man without flaw. It means totally human without the flaw of sin. And Jesus Christ became totally human. As God without the flaw of sin. And therefore, fully could express God. The full expression of God through what God created, which is man, cannot be in a being that is in the lineage of Adam that is sin. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any detail right now beyond that. So there's two recognitions. There's the negative symbol, and there's the plus symbol that comes out of the negative symbol. The plus symbol is the symbol of the mercy of God, which entails the grace of God. So there's these two symbols in the love of God. Now, we know in the natural realm that when there's a negative and positive, there's a surge of life and power. That brings light now God's being contains negatively the holiness of God which is a great plus because out of that holiness comes the mercy of God and the grace of God which is his love manifested in being able to assure destiny to those that repent and receive his atoning power to forgive because his being is a perfect atoning sacrifice It says in Revelations, the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, this atonement was already a reality before the world was created in God. And so indeed, there was in the recognition of the Father, these two aspects of the being of God, the holiness of God, out of which issues the goodness of God ultimately manifested in his power to forgive and assure forgiveness. this is a recognition of what is ultimately trustworthy when you see how great god's love is that he could actually take your suffer more than you a mere creature that he actually suffered in this time and space realm more than you a mere creature and humbled himself more than you a mere creature this clenched fist what happens to it it sees, first of all, that it is totally wrong in the light of God's holiness. Therefore, the spirit cannot worship the soul. And when you see that you're totally wrong, you're not going to be able to clench your fist anymore. You're going to break. Your pride is going to break like the shell of a seed. It's going to break open. And it can break open because of one reason. Because it also sees the light of God's love and his grace. And so you open up like an open hand of surrender and into that open hand comes the hand of God's Spirit against your soul and to, 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 to form two hands of prayer so that your soul and spirit is now held in a selfless state of trust instead of like a clenched fist it is held in that selfless state of trust because the Spirit of God comes to dwell with you in the time before Christ and dwell you in the time after Christ Now you are born of the Spirit and you have the seed of the new divine nature in you. And this all came out of the genuine fear of God. It came by coming to recognize the reality of who God is, which could only be an ultimate trust in the fact that there is a love that is totally holy and can be transcendent with the power in that holiness to assure mercy and forgiveness. And so we see in this centurion a man that had utter humility he knew he had such reverence and humility before God that he had a very genuine faith genuine faith comes out of the genuine fear of God that's where it originates from there it is birthed through the recognition of God's mercy and grace to us personally so that We are broken of our pride and we are released into a state of selfless trust. And therefore we grow in that state. And that is why the word of God commands us. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So Christ also in Luke 17 clearly defines what genuine faith is. He says that faith is like a grain of mustard seed that grows into an enormous tree. You see, a mustard seed is very small and insignificant. It doesn't look at itself as something great or significant. It is totally small. It is in total humility before God. But it is filled with such life inside it that it can be put in the worst desert conditions and it will burst through all of those conditions because the moral persuasion is so strong. You see, faith is moral persuasion in who God is. And when that moral persuasion is strong because you've really seen who God is, there's great humility and there's also great honesty. The genuine fear of God causes a person to be very humble and And realize their utter dependence on God. It's not just reverence. Reverence without dependence is not the genuine fear of God. But reverence that that births this humility and honesty, which work together. Because when you become humble, you become honest to face your need of God. And when you become honest, you become humble to see and reciprocate your need of God. So you have a reciprocative abiding relationship of faith. Now as we go on in this passage of Luke chapter 7. We discover an expanding of what this genuine faith is. Now I just want to read a little bit of the notes before I go on to this other part of Luke. uh, On what I just said briefly in my notes from verses 1 to 10. I don't even know now what I said, but here I'm going to read it. That centurion had the genuine fear of God that births great humility out of recognizing the goodness and mercy of God through waiting on God that births great faith and intimacy with God. This kind of humility and reverence is the womb in which grows great genuine faith, which is moral persuasion that is lived out In and who, in and into who, no, in and into who God is. Okay. Now, we have in the next scene here, the scene of a woman carrying out her son, who has died, who was probably her only source of living, and so dear and so precious to her. Can you imagine, here is a woman that's a widow. She's lost her husband. And now all she has is left her son that was helping her, and he's died. You can imagine how grief-stricken she was, how broken she was before God. And Christ comes on the scene, and he says to her, to the briars, as this woman is totally undone at the end of herself, and wondering, how in the world am I going to survive? But more than anything hurt over the loss of someone so dear and precious to her. And Christ comes on the scene and he says to the briars to stand still. When we experience trials in our lives. The most immediate natural thing to do is to panic and try to solve our problems. Or to give up and say, oh God, if you've allowed all this in my life, I'm just going to run away from you. And so those Briars and that woman could have said, oh don't bother me, I'm bitter, I'm upset that God did this in my life. I don't want to talk to anyone, I'm just going to get my son buried. But she heeded the voice of God, even though she was so broken and desperate. She stood still. Instead of running in the energy of some bitterness and upset over what God allowed, she stood still. And this, her son, was raised from the dead. Paul the Apostle said that in his prayer, that one of the things he desired for the believers is that they would... Know the, that to them that believe, that they would know the exceeding great witness of his power to us who believe, even the working of his mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. When we are facing trials and contradictions, where we are brought to the place of total brokenness and helplessness as believers, we can believe in the resurrection power of God to come forth. Because we can have a persuasion in God that causes us to still trust him through the trial, to still be thankful instead of becoming bitter. We can trust that he's the creator, that he has a creative purpose in it. What was the problem in Job's trial? What was the working out of Job's trial? The Lord explains it very effectively when he comes in the whirlwind and he says, do you see my creativity? Look at how I create this. Look at how I create that. So why are you darkening my counsel with words without knowledge? Don't you believe in my creativity? Don't you trust in who I am? Do you not have moral persuasion that I have a positive purpose in this in your life? That I can bring you out of it? And So he reproved Job. And Job repents and dust and ashes before God. And so Job had the experience of a deeper conversion to God. His own self-sufficiency in the trial was broken, his own self-righteousness, and he came to a place of greater reciprocation of who God is. Coming out of that part of him that was in his own righteousness, in his own understanding that darkened his insight to not judge according to his own understanding and appearance. That is why it's so important in trials that we learn, as the word of God says, not to lean on our own understanding, but to in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will direct our paths out of the wilderness of trial into a wealthy place of provision and service. What about those that are martyred and are tortured. Do you not think that God gives them strength. When they feel totally helpless. To stand against the torture. To deny their faith. They cry in their soul and their spirit. They turn to God in dependence. And he gives them the power that is beyond themselves. To go through the trial. Yes. We are. We can say as the Apostle Paul, thanks be unto God that causes us to triumph in all things. We can be persuaded as the Apostle Paul that nothing can separate us from the love of God, from who God is in his being, which is this ultimate perfection of love. We go on in this passage of Scripture and we have the experience of John the Baptist's wanting to know and about the people not discerning who he is and they're judging him and they're judging him some of them are saying how could this man be a prophet? Look at he's like a glutton. And Christ gives the example. And he says it's like children playing in the market. That's what this generation is like. They're wondering why people won't do what they're wanting them to do. We weep and you don't weep. We dance and you don't dance. They're wondering why. And Christ says, the wisdom is justified of our children. You see, those that are truly the children of God are not interested in the response of man. They're interested in the response of God. The response of man and the response of our own self-righteousness in one another and and in our own soul as we speak to our own soul, if it is out of our own self-righteousness. We'll always bring judgment that is according to our own understanding and according to our own perception of things. And so there's no wisdom. There's no wisdom. Because wisdom comes out of the genuine fear of God. This is very clear in the Word of God. It says, makes it very clear and defines that. It says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Because wisdom is the right application of knowledge. And how can you possibly rightly apply knowledge if you haven't perceived the constitution of that ultimate quality of the being of God? If you've not reciprocated it or received it, you've ignored it for your own independence. Wisdom is the discretion to... I'm going to read this now that I did in my notes. Wisdom, which is the discretion to apply knowledge, a right comes out of the genuine fear of God, which is the choice to enter into the right recognition and reciprocation of the constitution of the ultimate quality of who God is. Those that are self-righteous totally lack wisdom because their pride has not been broken, because of not entering into this choice and recognizing and reciprocation of the ultimate perfection of love and its integrity and required judgment and transcendence therefrom in the mercy and grace to one personally. This breaks self-righteousness and pride this brings faith that can respond a right in choices to use a knowledge because of a solid, immovable foundation of consequence that can only be in recognizing a right, the constitution of who God is as that foundation. In other words, if you don't recognize who God is as that foundation, you're not recognizing the foundation of consequence itself. God is the ultimate foundation of all consequence, His holiness requires that judgment. And if you haven't recognized the holiness of God and you're rebelling against it, or you're trusting in your own self righteousness to be acceptable to before God, you'll never begin to judge out of a heart that sees beyond the outward understanding and appearance. Wisdom looks at the heart motive and intent. And does not judge according to outward appearance. That's what basically Christ is saying in this passage of scripture. We go on. And we have verses 36 to 50. Where we have. The woman wiping. His feet with her tears. And again we see the example of. Of those that judge according to their own self righteous judgment, and the Pharisee, who could only see what the woman had done in her life and didn't recognize the repentance in her, didn't recognize the brokenness and the contrition in her. Wisdom looks at the heart motive and intent and does not judge according to the outward appearance. And so Christ could say unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Because she had a genuine faith in the mercy of God. She wouldn't have come and kissed his feet if she didn't. She wouldn't have been weeping if she didn't know that he had the power to forgive her sins. She knew that she could be forgiven. And she came with great thankfulness and humility before the feet of Christ. Yes, that is why many that are first shall be last, and many that are last shall be first. Because those that tend to say, Lord, I will go and I will forsake all for you, and might even go to others and preach at them, oh, like they already have forsaken all and everyone else is not there yet. And they assume a position of self-righteous judgment over them. Such people have not known what it is to enter in. To a deep conversion to Christ, if they've been converted at all. Deep conversion involves a deep circumcision of the heart, like this woman. Or as Christ said concerning the Pharisees that glory in all the righteous things that they do in their religious rituals of fasting and so on. But he said, as those Pharisees were thanking God, they were not justified before God. But the publican that beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, as he bowed his head in the dust. He cried out, and he cried from the depths of his being, beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man was justified before God. He had a heart of genuine repentance that changed his life, so that he could go and sin no more. Because when you really see how great God's mercy and love is to you, All you want to do is live your life in thankfulness to him and you don't want anything to do with the emptiness that you were grasping for that left hell in your life. You found your wholeness is in God. That God is good because he's holy and because out of his holiness, he can be merciful and assure forgiveness. And so now you are part of the family of God. God is calling us as his people to come out of our self-righteous judgments that have limited the fullness of his purpose and calling in our lives. He wants us to learn what it is to call upon him. It says the Lord is rich unto all those that call upon him, that call upon him like the publican, like the sinner, that know what it is to circumcise our heart, to turn with all our heart unto God. Oh, for God to have his house of prayer again, where we can come before him and cry out with the depths of our heart in humility and in brokenness. And yes, also experience a rising forth in the gifts of the spirit and in worship in great joy that is pure. The problem in the church today is that so few of us have learned what it is. To enter into the genuine fear of God so that where our faith is genuine and immovable. We have not learned what it is to humble ourselves before God. We should be starting our church services with the pastors on their faces, learning to humble themselves before the congregation, the congregation humbling themselves before God. Don't start complaining that no one's coming to the prayer meeting until you make your church a prayer meeting itself. The church service springs out of prayer. It springs out of his house being a house of prayer and allowing each member to burst forth in the gifts of the Spirit as the Spirit would so move upon them. Every genuine revival, such as the Welsh revival, which was a genuine revival, that's what was involved. It was becoming... A genuine house of prayer, entering the genuine fear of God, where there's the breaking up of the fallow ground, where we're learning to continually be in a place of humility and reverence in the starting of our meetings that will allow the fullness of the headship of Christ over the body. It doesn't mean that the pastor can't speak, a message still, but he will certainly facilitate each member of the body to move in the gifts of the Spirit as God would please. And those that would disrupt that are not of God, God will take care of them. Why are we not trusting God that he as the head can come? We as the leaders in the body of Christ should be those that are washing the feet of those we serve. And those in the body of Christ should be washing one another's feet with the word of God out of first being before the feet of Christ and shedding our tears like that woman to wash his feet. That is what God is calling. He's calling for us to repent of not allowing the fullness of the headship of Christ to come and dwell the body because we have our own plans and agendas and we like our little comfort zone. It is time to let the headship of Christ come over the body for his house to become a house of prayer again. The other passages I briefly mentioned that I received this week was Joel 2, and we know what that passage is about. It's about the army that God sends to destroy all the goodness in the land. And what was the purpose? It was that they might turn to God with fasting and mourning and weeping and prayer, and then the Lord says, that if you call this a solemn assembly, And you see the urgency of it. And you let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? God is calling his people to repentance, to fasting, to prayer, to mourning, that we may know the true joy and blessings of God. Weeping may endure for a night, But joy will then come in the morning. The other passage I got was not 1 Chronicles 17, but 2 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17 is about humbling ourselves before God. But this was about Jehoshaphat and his prosperity. And and I said this, when we enter a time of prosperity as Jehoshaphat, let us remember that God humbled himself beyond our comprehension. By being crucified for our sins, so that we might have everlasting prosperity. Focusing on this keeps us from becoming proud when God prospers us for his glory in this world. And I could go on here, there's too much to share. But the other passage I received was John chapter 6. And here again, we see an example of how the natural mind does not perceive the things of the Spirit of God, which are revealed. By the Spirit of God to those that are receptive to the revelation. As it says, thy doctrine shall distill as the dew. It distills in those that are as babes. That receive the word of God, here a little, there a little, as babes. On the breast sucking its mother's breasts, Not like the self-righteous as it mentions in Isaiah 28 as well that to receive the word of God, here a little, there a little, that it strengthens them in their own self-righteousness until they fall back and are snared and taken. Christ describes this reciprocative relationship. They don't understand it when he's saying that you're to eat of my flesh and my blood. And he says the reason they don't is because they can't receive those words, which are spirit and life. The words I speak are spirit and life was his explanation to these hard things that he was saying. And he says, as the living father, in verse 57 of chapter 6 of John, as the living father has sent me, and I live by the father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live Forever. Then we go down to, or up to verse 43 and to 47, and he says this. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, "Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me drawn, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. This word believe, pistis, moral persuasion in God, involves first knowing who the Father is. And the way we come to know the Father is through the genuine fear of God. We choose to genuinely fear God, to genuinely recognize God and his holiness. Without rebellion in our heart, we become convicted of our rebellion. Instead of blaming God for all the suffering in our lives, and going in rebellion our own way, trying to fill a void that only God can fill that we were created. For we were only created to find pleasure, ultimately, in fellowship with God. And so he describes this reciprocative relationship as eating his flesh and his blood, and he says, even as I live by the Father, so you will live by me by eating my flesh and my blood. In the sense of recognizing in our soul and spirit his outpoured, atoning love for us in his outpoured body and blood. And they recognize that from the very beginning of time. That only God could forgive That only God could ultimately be the source of forgiveness. The animal sacrifices were like an initiation towards, a step towards recognizing that atonement that was ultimately in God with a repentant heart. So God bless you. And may we continue with this everlasting gospel that is described in Revelations chapter 14, and that is the gospel that I am preaching to you. It is the everlasting gospel that existed before the world was created, that people from the time of Adam and Eve till now have entered into and are part of the family of God in heaven. Thank you for listening to this message.